Genesis chapter 47. In Genesis 47, the church and the world are pictured for us in contrast. The contrast is not how the people act. The contrast is how they are treated. And as we look through this chapter this morning, we're going to have to define a couple of words so that we can get this. And the first word that we need to define is that word contrast. Contrast doesn't mean the varied shades of the same color that's used in decorating. At times, a wall can be painted as what is called a contrasting color. But that's not the true meaning of that word contrast. Contrast, by definition, means the state of being strikingly different from something else in juxtaposition or in close association with it. Hot is in contrast to cold. Ugly is in contrast to beauty. Tall is in contrast to short. Love is in contrast to hate. Atheist is in contrast to theist. And the contrast from today's sermon will be the gospel. The love of God for his elect in contrast to his love for the rest of the world. And the first section of our scripture today is meant to be contrasted with the last section of this, of this chapter today. And in these sections, we see contrasted the manner in which the Lord deals with people. And through this, we're meant to ask ourselves, does our view of people line up with that of God? Or do we view people in contrast to how God does? That first section of Scripture from today deals with the people of Israel, the nation Israel, that special elect group of chosen people. And it is then contrasted with the non-elect people. Again, not how each people group acted. We're not contrasting good and bad because neither group is good. Which should cause us to wonder at how God deals with both groups of these people. Because neither are good. Neither do good. And yet God faithfully deals well with both of them. But there is a contrast between how He deals with them. So with this in mind, with the contrast with the thought of the contrast between Israel and Egypt. Let's begin. Verse 1, Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. So here's the setup for the first part of the chapter. Joseph has obeyed the command of Pharaoh, sent wagons for his family, and they have obeyed the command and have come to Egypt where Joseph has directed them to that part of the land called Goshen, a part of Egypt where there were yet no large cities, where their chosen profession of being herders of flocks could be maintained. And he took five men from among his brothers and sent them before Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And, we, and they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flock, for the famine is heavy in the land of Canaan. So now, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. 
And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Have your father and your brothers settle in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any excellent men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. So the introduction of these men may have come about because of the exalted position of their brother. But the determinations remain an abomination to the Egyptians, especially since Joseph was in such a high place within the government. This was not common. It would have been very easy for Joseph to place his brothers, his family members, into government jobs, have them be put in charge of the distribution of grain in outlying towns. But it was important to God that his family remain Hebrew and not assimilate into the Egyptian culture, become Hebrew in name only. And the reason for this is because in a few generations, they would no longer be keepers of flocks, no longer be shepherds. God was specifically saving them for a job change when they would become builders and slave labor for the Egyptians. If they assimilated now, this would not happen. They must remain Hebrew. And then Joseph then brings in his aged father to meet this king of Egypt. He doesn't bring in dad with the rest of the family. He shows honor and respect to Jacob by bringing him in on his own. And there is a contrast being made here. Because it was Joseph who's attained to wealth, to power, to prominence in his life. It was he who was finally decked out in the latest fashion, who smelled of, of that axe body spray, who sported the latest hairstyles of the elite. His father, his father was old, walked with a limp, wasn't stylish, wasn't polished, wasn't trained in the ways of the world. And yet Joseph respected and honored his father because of who he was his father. But more than that, he respected him for who he was in the Lord, because he was the anointed of God. He was, as long as he was alive, the man who the covenant promises of his grandfather Abraham had been passed down to. And for these reasons, Joseph honored him. And again, we should make sure that we have a right picture of the events as they're unfolding in our minds. Jacob, He's an old man who's lived his entire life in tents, off the land, a man of flocks and herds, not refined, not soft and well-dressed. And as he came into this palace, again, the contrast between tents and a palace supposed to be in our minds. As he was led through this city of the king of Egypt, where he lived, to his palace, he could have allowed his heart to desire. He could have thought, this is the life for me. And he could have desired the things of Egypt. And if this were the case then, then what happened as told to us in verse 7 would have never happened. Verse 7, then Joseph brought his father Jacob and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And this should not have been the case. How can this old sheep herder have any means to bless the Pharaoh of Egypt? 
Because it's been rightly said that the greater always blesses the lesser and not the other way around. And as we're told in verse 7, and then again in verse 10, it's Jacob, this old man, who had nothing but the herds in the field and the meager possessions that that could be loaded into a few wagons, that he could bless this man who was considered a living God. How did he bless Pharaoh? What did he give him? And within these verses, we are meant to contrast what we consider a blessing with that which God says is a blessing. What follows in verses 8 through 10 tells us what it is that Jacob gave to Pharaoh, how he blessed him. Verses 8 through 10. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days or the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my life, are, I'm sorry, of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years that my father lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. So Jacob hobbles in and he blesses the king of Egypt. He doesn't come in and speak in a subservient manner, speaking of himself as being beholden to Pharaoh. And and Pharaoh, as he sat on that throne, finely dressed, maybe having one Gucci sandal hanging off of his freshly pedicured foot, this old man comes hobbling in and blesses him. And verse 9 tells us what his reaction to was. As Jacob said, Jacob blessed him. He asked him, how old are you? So is his response akin to what happens in this part of the country in these days? You know, that person who thinks very little of you, who really doesn't like you, and after you say something, after you speak to them, they look at you and they say, bless your heart. It sounds nice. It sounds like they care. sounds like they're being nice to you. But it's not. Is that what's happening here? But he doesn't ask him, how old are you? Pharaoh may have been at wonder at Jacob because people, by and large, didn't live that long. And historically speaking, the lifespan of Egypt was much shorter than that of Canaan. So Pharaoh, he could have been a wonder, and in wonder of this wrinkled, stooped old man. He may have looked at him and thought, you're, you're just so old. I mean, look at you. You're like old. How old are you? But this isn't what Pharaoh asked Jacob. He doesn't ask him, how old are you? He asked him, how many are the days or the years of your life? And then the manner in which Israel blesses Pharaoh is demonstrated to us. And saints, this is where we are supposed to start asking ourselves some questions. And this is where we need to make sure that we understand the correct meaning of that word, bless. We hear that word used a lot. We say, bless you when you sneeze. We say we desire to be a blessing. We say that that person is a blessing, or that job is a blessing, or that toy is a blessing. 
And if you're really spiritual, if you're really spiritual of the spiritual elite, a real Christian, when someone asks you, how are you? You will stop, look longingly into heaven, and you will say, I'm blessed. But what does that word really mean? What does the Bible define blessing as? Because we look at the wagons that were sent as a blessing. We look at those ten mules loaded with the best of Egypt. We think those are blessings. But are we right? And if we are right, then what did Jacob do? Did he just give that stuff back to Pharaoh? Is that how he blessed him? No. In almost every instance in the Bible, when that term blessing or to be blessed is used, it has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with material wealth or possessions. In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the first mention of bless or blessing happens in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 22. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. What did God do in this verse? Did he give the birds and the animals and the insects material possessions? Is that what he did? No. He gave them life. Days to live. And he does the same thing again in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. And this is told to his magnus opus. And don't think that that divine mandate to have dominion over the rest of the creation is the blessing. That is spoken of after God blessed them. What was it that God blessed man with? To understand what it means to be blessed. An insight into what it means. We have to look at Genesis 2, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from his work which God had created in making it. So when God blessed his creation, first the birds and the insects and the fish and the sea. He gave them the right. He gave them the privilege in living in harmony with him, which is exactly the same thing he did when he blessed man. But what was it? What did he do when he blessed the Sabbath day? What does that mean? Well, God separated that day from all the rest. He made it special. But what was special about this day? What did it have that all the rest of the days didn't have? And the fact that the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, this has become stuff of great controversy. Because there are those out there will tell you that unless you, be, you are meeting and worshiping on Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath, that you're in sin. In fact, you may not even be saved. And then there are those Christians who call themselves Sabbatarians as well. The Seventh-day Adventists, they're part of that group. 
they take the blessings of the Lord, at least they think that they do, more literal than we do. We who meet on the first day of the week. We who do not obey the laws concerning working on the Sabbath. Do we have a bad understanding of what the Sabbath is? And what this day is all about? Is this, is this the truth? Are we just truly walking in sin because we are not Sabbatarians? God blessed the Sabbath. Well, this is not a new controversy. This controversy was in full swing, and these types of accusations were being made by the first seven-day Adventists. And they said the same thing to that problem prophet who had shown up in their midst in AD 30, who was not following the Sabbath rules. And after breaking the Sabbath rules again by healing a man on the Sabbath day, the most blessed of days, and then being caught red-handed as his disciples were working by breaking wheat and eating it on the Sabbath day, it was then that this young prophet pointed out their own inconsistencies to those Sabbath keepers. In Matthew 12, verses 3 through 8, we read, He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath but are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But they had no idea who the Son of Man is. And they didn't understand what he meant by being Lord of the Sabbath. Him being Lord of the Sabbath and what it truly means, the true meaning of that statement, that is supposed to color our understanding of what it means to be blessed. And to understand this, a parallel account of the disciples eating grain on the Sabbath is told to us in Mark chapter 2. And there, after telling them that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, the explanation of what that mean is given is mean is given to us in Mark 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What? What are you trying to get at, David? I, I'm not picking up what you're laying down. Let me ask you this. What was the primary reason that Jesus Christ was made incarnate? Why did he come into this realm as a man? He did so in order to reconcile a chosen group of people to the Father. He, the Sabbath, was made for man. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And you may be wondering, how, how, how can a living Christ, how can a living Christ, a living Jesus, how can he be an inanimate thing? That doesn't compute. How is Christ the Sabbath? 
Well, to understand this, you would do well to study. And matter of fact, I would tell you, grab chapter 6 of John and live there. Because if you ever want to really understand the person and the work of Jesus the Christ, read and study John 6. And in this Sabbath, those seven-day Sabbath holders were seeking a sign from Christ, to which he tells them to work for the food from heaven, to believe on the one that God has sent. And they didn't get it. To which they said, well, Moses gave us manna from heaven. Do that sign, Jesus. And then he shocked them by saying, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He is the bread that came out of heaven. He is the Sabbath that was made for man. And this truth is echoed in Hebrews 14, verses 8 through 12. There, it says, if Joshua had given them rest, he wouldn't have spoken of another day. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. Verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him who we have an account to give. And you're thinking, what? But did you catch, did you catch how God, again, This is God speaking. Yes, there's a human author of the book of Hebrews, but it is God speaking through that human author. Did you catch how God first spoke of the Word as a thing, as a book, and then spoke of the Word as a person? He said that we are to be diligent to enter that rest. And then he tells us what that rest is, which is the Word of God. And he tells us to enter this rest, our Sabbath rest, which is the Word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is the manna that came from heaven, and he is the word of God. And all true blessings are all spiritual in nature. They are all the reconciling of God and his creation. And they are all the revelation of Jesus, the Christ. This is what a blessing is. And this is what it means to be blessed. It is not things. And can you see how the enemy has blurred this concept in our minds? How we have been misled and misguided by words. God has blessed His chosen people in the Sabbath. By the Sabbath. Through the Sabbath. And what we hear Jacob doing is nothing more or or less than pronouncing a blessing on Pharaoh. 
But what would that look like? If it wasn't giving him stuff, then it must have been what he said. How did he bless him? May your many wives produce many offspring for you. May you gain more wealth. May you always be healthy. We think that this is what a blessing is. If it's not giving stuff, then it must be wishing somebody well. Is this, is what, is this what Jacob has done? More than likely not. Because being part of the family of God, knowing what blessings truly meant, Jacob would have wished that the favor of God in knowing the Lord, that that would be granted to him. And he blessed Pharaoh going in. Well, what did that look like? Well, if he's anything like the other prophets of old, we know or we can know. Listen to Daniel, the prophet Daniel, with that foreign king Nebuchadnezzar the first time that they met, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel answered the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king is asking, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and makes known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days. This was your dream and the visions on your head while on your bed. What about those other friends of Daniel, those other three prophets. How did they bless that same king? Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will save us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. One more. Daniel 4. When the same king gets all puffed up with pride in thinking that he had done all this himself, it was then that that prophet of God blessed him once again. Daniel 4. When he says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the resolution of the Most High, which has reached my Lord the King. You will be driven away from mankind, and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field, and when you will be given grass to eat like cattle and, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler of the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whoever he wishes. And it will be said and in that, they said, to lead the stump with the root of the tree, your kingdom will endure, for after you know that it is heaven that rules with power. Therefore, O king, may my advice seem good to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be, may be a prolonging of your prosperity." Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked him, How many are the days of the years of your life? And then Jacob answered in this manner, 
The days of the years of my sojourning are 130. What's with this guy? Is he just one of those guys who uses Christianese all the time? Just doesn't answer questions directly? No. What we are given insight into is how Jacob saw his life, the importance of his life. He doesn't answer in that normal fashion, telling Pharaoh the number of the years that he's made. He speaks of his life in the blessed sense, in the heavenlies. He equates his life, the sum of his years, the number of his days, with knowing God, with being in the will and the command of the Lord. He teaches us how we should understand our life. He speaks the truth of Psalm 90, verse 12, which tells us, Teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The new year. It's another day. How often do we actually live every day? We survive every day, but how often do we actually live them instead of just existing every day? That's the context behind that psalm verse. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to take a full advantage of the days that you've given to us. Teach us to use them for your glory, not flittering them away by numbing our hearts and our minds with video games or other inane things. Teach us to understand that every morning that we awake as the chosen Son of God, that you are with us. And you have things that you desire to teach us, adventures that you desire to take us through and on. Jacob had learned the truth of Psalm 39.4. Yahweh, cause me to know my end. And what it is, the extent of my days, let me know how transient I am. It's not just that he numbered his days. Not that he has learned to carpe diem, seize those days. But he's also learned that he has lived these days obedient to the Lord. He has lived as a sojourner on this planet every single day of his life. The value system that Pharaoh held was not the same as Jacob or even Joseph. Pharaoh, he lived for this world. He lived to obtain, to control as much as he could here. And for Jacob, his life was spent living for his home. And it wasn't this world. And it's this verse From our chapter today, that the author of Hebrews reaches back and grabs hold of in Hebrews 11.13, when he says, All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them. What was it that they saw? The same thing that you have seen, if you have seen Christ. And having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, Jacob has seen home. In fact, he wrestled with home on one occasion. 
And for this reason, he lived as a sojourner here in this realm. And then Jacob continues. He says, few and evil have been the days of my life. Well, what does this mean? Is he feeling sorry for himself, telling Pharaoh, hey, don't judge me by the way that I look, that I'm not polished. Life has been hard for me. People have mistreated me. It's not what he's saying. He meant the same thing as we're told in Job 14, verses 1 through 4, where Job said, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not stand. You also open your eyes on him and bring me into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. He, like Job, he knew that he wasn't a good guy. And that he had been blessed by God. How had he been blessed? By living 130 years? No, by being given the eyes to see the reality of who he was. By being reconciled back to God. And this man stood as a prophet before Pharaoh. And 400 years later, God would send another prophet to a yet another Pharaoh. And that prophet would also bless that Pharaoh by telling him the reality of God. And Jacob stood as a prophet of God before this man, an anointed, exalted position. And yet, this prophet of God, the anointed of the Lord, also understood I'm not to be celebrated. Which is why he could say to Pharaoh that he had not attained to the days of the years that his fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. He respected his elders. And remember, this is the man who wrestled with God. His father Isaac couldn't make that claim. Neither could Abraham. And yet he didn't make much of himself. And then Jacob does once again that thing. He blesses Pharaoh. And saints, we're supposed to see ourselves here in this account. Because in every encounter that you have in this realm, if you are the son of the living king, you are to bless those with whom you encounter. No matter their position. Because you are royalty. And you are supposed to be living as a sojourner here, just as Jacob had been. And you're supposed to be a blessing to those that you encounter. A blessing in how you work, yes. How you speak, yes. How you act, yes. Being honest, straightforward, a good steward of the things put at your disposal. Yes, a blessing in all those things. But all those things, they are only supposed to bolster, to enhance the real blessing that you were to give when you come in contact with people by telling the truth to them, telling them why you are special when you point them to Christ. If they are of the redeemed, Point them home. 
And Christ is our home. And if they're not redeemed, then bless them. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth of the wonderful God that has made himself known to you, who is the creator of the universe and the savior of the world. Bless them. Jacob knew this, and this is why. As he stood in the opulent palace of this earthly king, a man who considered himself a living God, that he could without pomp, pageantry, or pride, bless him by revealing the truth of God to him. Verses 11 and 12 then end this section of, of this chapter. Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession of the land of Egypt. In the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded, and Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. When Jacob stood before Pharaoh, he did so on behalf of his king, God. And as Joseph stood before his family, he did the same thing. He stood them, stood before them on behalf of his king. He knew that God had sent him there, had put him there for this purpose, and he meant to do all things as if unto the Lord. So he did. And this is where these men can so often stand in stark contrast to us. Jacob, Joseph, they were saints just as we are. And yet they knew the Lord with such clarity that they could with absolute assuredness know that they lived at his beck and call. That the decisions that they made on a daily basis were of God. And nothing has changed. We are supposed to know the Lord this well. We are actually responsible for knowing the Lord to such a degree that we can live with absolute assuredness that our decisions are His decisions. This truth is spoken throughout the Bible. Psalm 100, verse 3 Deuteronomy 29.29, which says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Or Luke 12, verse 48, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all that more. And this is the condemnation of Romans 1. People should know God. And we, who have been given hearts to know Him, to choose Him, we who have been given the Word of God, we truly should know God. We should be sure of His character, of His faithfulness, of Him hearing our prayers. How do you know the Lord? How well, how sure of, of Him are you? of his goodness, of his faithfulness, that you are actually in his will, you will be held accountable. And then verses 13 through 26 tell of how Joseph 
with complete confidence that his actions were the will of God, how he dealt with the people of Egypt. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very heavy, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Then the money came to the end in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. So all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Then that year came to an end. And they came to him the next year and said, we will not hide from our Lord that our money has come to an end, that the livestock are not are my Lord's. There is nothing left for the Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Verse 20, so Joseph brought or bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he moved them to the seas from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests did he not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they ate off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they didn't sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you that you may sow the land. And it will be at the harvest you will give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths you shall be, well, shall be for your own seed, for the field and for your food and for the, those of your household, and for food for your little ones. Verse 25, so they said, You have kept us alive. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Okay, so let's recap. Here, this foreigner, he's placed second in command, vice-regent, over all of Egypt, only Pharaoh outvoting him. And during the seven years of plenty, he starts to grab the goods. He commands everyone, give one-fifth of your grain to the government. And to make that understandable to us, that would be 20% of their net, not their gross, during these seven years. Not 10% of your leftover, 20% of your net. That means if you made $50,000 a year, you would give $10,000 to the government. If you made $500 a week, you would give $100 to the government every week for seven years. And then when the seven years of plenty ended, then the food stores were opened up to keep all the people alive. Only it wasn't given back to them. Joseph sold it to them. And then when their money ran out, he took their livestock as trade. And then the titles to their lands that they owned for the grain that they had been forced to give to the government. And once that was gone, when they had no money left, Nothing of value outside of themselves. This is when they offered themselves to the government as slaves. And it was then that Joseph told them, oh, you're not going to have to sell yourself to the government. I mean, that would be silly. That would be wrong. 
I'm going to graciously give you food. With the stipulation that for every year for the rest of your lives, you will give the government 20% of your goods. That doesn't seem like a very good Christian witness. Doesn't seem like Joseph is being much of a blessing to them. Only this isn't how they saw it. Look at verse 25 again. So they said, you have kept us alive. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. They were just grateful to be alive. They were grateful that God had brought this man to do the hard thing in keeping them and their country intact during this time. And this is how God deals with people, his chosen people, and even the rest of humanity. He's a blessing to both. He had sold Joseph into slavery, ripped him from his family, sold him as a slave into Egypt for the good of both sets of people. And the Egyptian people, they benefited from the blessing of the Lord. But it was to the chosen people, for the benefit and blessing of the chosen people of God, that his focus and primary concern was for. And then verses 27 through 31 of our chapter, then jump back to the people of God, the nation that was not yet a nation, a nation who were being sent into exile by the loving hand of their father. Israel lived in the land of Egypt and Goshen, and they took possession of property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so that the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. Then the days of Israel when they drew near to the end, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in loving kindness and in truth. Do not bury me in Egypt, but I will lie down with my fathers, and you will carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him, and then Israel bowed and worshipped at the head of his bed. Again, this chapter is given to us to show a visible contrast of how God deals with people. Understand, both groups of people, the Egyptians and the Israelites, they both went through this famine. And both groups were saved by God sending Joseph into Egypt. But it was for the specific purpose of the chosen people of Israel that he was sent there. Back in chapter 45, when Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers, he also reveals the why of, how he was, of what has transpired in the past 20 years of their lives. Verses 4 through 7 of chapter 45, Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. That's the revelation of who he was. And then beginning in verse 5, the why of everything that has happened. So now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Yes, God sent Joseph. He's the one responsible for the events in the life of Joseph. And as Joseph has said, he sent him to Egypt to preserve life. The life of the Egyptians? Sure. And we could say, by extension, then, the life of all those that came looking for food, too. But that's not the case. The lives of the Egyptians were not the primary concern for God, even though he was sent there. 
Verses 6 through 7 say, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there were five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive for the great remnant of survivors. God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive for a great remnant of survivors. Even though they all went through the famine, God treated the elect chosen people of God different than he did all others. He treated them different. He blessed them. This is the same truth as told to us in Ephesians 1.22 when he said he put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Church. If you are the church, God has treated you as special. But you're thinking, we're not the nation Israel. We're not the children of Jacob. Why should this even matter to us? Because most of us sitting here, matter of fact, all of us sitting here, we're not Jewish. One more word that we need to define. Israel. Because we who hold to covenant theology have been accused of having replacement theology. We have been accused of taking the promises made to that nation Israel and then making them apply to the church. Is this true? There's more than one question in that question. First, have we pulled a Jacob? Have we stolen the blessings of the Jewish people and now made them ours, claimed them as ours? That's one question. And the second question concerns God and not us. Does God view that nation Israel, the Jewish people, differently than all others? Even different than the church? Does he have two salvation plans in place, one for the church and the other for the chosen people of God? Well, to answer this, we must define Israel, which means governed by God. That covenant that that physical nation Israel claims as their own was made to a single man. It was made to Abram and to his seed. And once we define what that seed is, we will have defined Israel. Here's that covenant promise made in Genesis 17:7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. That mean the nation Israel, all the Israelites, the 12 tribes? Is that what that means? We made the same covenant with that chosen son of Abram. Not both of them. There was a chosen son, Isaac. Genesis 26, 24. Yahweh appeared to him that night and said, I am God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of my servant Abraham. And then in Genesis 32, 12, the covenant promise made to the one son of Isaac as well. Again, not both sons, but one son, Jacob, the elect chosen son. 
I will surely prosper you and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So we can safely say that while that covenant promise was made to Israel, it was initially made to Abram, and then passed over Ishmael to Isaac, and then passed over Esau to Jacob. Not all the sons of Abram are of the covenant promise. So fast forward to the incarnation of the covenant promise to the chosen people of God. Fast forward to Galatians 3. There, God speaks to us once again concerning the idea of a covenant promise to a covenant people. Beginning in verse 15, he says through Paul, Brothers, I speak in human terms. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. The question is, does the first covenant, the covenant to Abram and his seed, does it still stand, even though the law has been given? Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and it does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but to one, and to your seed, and that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance is the law, is by the law, it is no longer a promise but God has granted it to Abram through promise. So no, the covenant made to Abram still stands. And through him to the seed that has always been the seed, there was the Sabbath that is the bread, that is the word, Christ. And then skipping down to verse 23 of Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were held under custody under the law, being shut up for a coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor under Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed, heirs according to their promise. We have not replaced anyone. We have always been the chosen, the elect of God. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God does play favorites. And our chapter from today is meant to demonstrate this fact. And the question you should know, are you one of his favorites? Do you know if you are one of his favorites? Has he blessed you? Do you even know how you're supposed to know that you're one of his favorites? He demonstrates that you are one of his favorites in a very specific, very clear and contrasting way. Just like with these people, even though they all went through the hard, same hard thing, the same drought, the same famine, those that are his, that he showers his blessings on, that makes the son of Abraham, they know things. 
They know things about themselves. They know that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, which is why they run to Christ, to the seed and His salvation, and they stay right there. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. As told to us in Galatians 3.16. And that's an amazing truth to ponder. But saints, I'm going to leave you with one great truth as well. Another truth that we are to ponder. A truth that is perhaps even greater when we think of it. Because if God is treating you as one of his special children, if he is doing this, you should be able to recognize this. Do you know you're a sinner in need of a Savior? And have you run to Christ? Because if you have, then you are like Jacob. Jacob and his children, they were all seen as outsiders, as foreigners, as less than by the people of the world, and yet they were the special ones. They were the reason that Joseph was sent there. And they would be soon treated harshly. And yet they were the blessed ones. And they knew that they were special. That God treated them as special. Again, do you recognize this within yourself? Because there's one last truth that you should know. Because if you are grafted into the tree of life that is Christ, as a child of Abraham, a son of God, as a grafted-in child of Israel, there's something more that your loving Father desires that you know. Listen to verses 26-29 of Galatians 3 once again. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Does that describe you? Yes? For all of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. That is how we are blessed. Let's pray.